0: Hey, everyone. Before we get started on the podcast, I just want to share some quick news. I've decided to start collecting information about the impact investment industry. I find I am often approached by people who have questions about whether I know of job opportunities, events, where they can find impact investment offerings. There's not a lot of centralization of information around this kind of niche area. So, for instance, if you go looking for jobs and you go to a job board, there isn't a, an impact investment filter, um, for instance. And so I'm going to start collecting that information. If you head over head over to davidoleary.ca slash community, you'll find... A, a place where you can subscribe to the mailing list and uh, join the community where I'll share this information. Also, you'll find some forms where if you are an impact investment organization, uh, work with one and you want to share information about a job, an event you have coming up, and or an investment offering that you are issuing, or that is available for investment, feel free to submit information there. And as I sort of build up a bit of a critical mass, I'll start to share that information on the website, through the podcast, and to the mailing list. So the surest way to uh, make sure you don't miss out on any info is through the mailing list. Also, just a big shout out to Jude from Seattle, who left a really glowing review on Apple Podcasts. Jude, thanks so much for taking the time. It means the world to me. And... If you're listening to the podcast and you've been enjoying it and you haven't yet left a review, please take a moment and do so. It would really mean a lot. It really helps spread the word and get the podcast out there. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Welcome to episode 24 of the Impact Investing Podcast. Given the capitalistic societies most of us live in, We spend an inordinate amount of time focused on accumulating, growing, and deploying capital. You can fill a library with all the books dedicated to the what and how of capital. Yet, we devote shockingly little time to considering the why of capital. Much in the way Simon Sinek asks us all to start with why, consider our purpose, Jed Emerson would like us purveyors of capital to start with why. In other words we'd be well-served to stop and ask ourselves, what is the purpose of capital? With me today to tackle this question is Jed Emerson, one of the impact investment industry's elder statesmen who literally wrote the book on this topic. In addition to his writing, Jed currently focuses on working with families and institutions and exploring how to ensure a long-term legacy by managing their full net worth for impact. He also advises investment firms on the implications of an impact investing framework for their practice. Jed is an internationally recognized thought leader, in impact investing, social entrepreneurship, and strategic philanthropy. In this episode, Jed and I discuss his journey through the industry from his early days as a social worker to his current work as a writer and advisor. We also dig into major themes in his book, which is called The Purpose of Capital, including the role of Western dualism and our separation of self and other the role of spirituality in impact investing, and how Jed's views of the industry and capital have evolved over the years. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end where we talk about what Jed believes we're getting wrong about impact measurement and management, along with his outlook for the future of the industry. So Jed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, I've been excited to have this uh, discussion for a little while now, um, maybe a little bit um, intimidated to have it for, for a while too. We, um, we had a, um, we met last year at the social finance forum and we had a um, panel discussion or moderated kind of fireside chat around uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today, but impact investing and the opportunity to, to, you know, prove the world through it. Um, but I have been really, um, I found your book, The Purpose of Capital, very profound. And so uh, I've been wrestling with a lot of the ideas and concepts and kind of lessons in it. And so this is just selfishly a really exciting uh, podcast episode for me. Um, And I think that people listening will find it that way too. Um, Maybe just to start, can you introduce everybody who maybe isn't familiar with who you are and what you've done? I've got a long, um, meaningful contribution to the impact investment industry, but you could summarize for us.
1: Sure. Well, just briefly, I started my career in youth and community development in San Francisco as founding director of the Larkin Street Youth Center. And while I'm really proud of the work that we did there, and it's now a large multi-million dollar organization, I I really reached a point where I was frustrated with traditional nonprofit management, traditional philanthropy, uh, government funding practices. Uh, This is all in the 80s. And um, I just decided I needed to, to kind of do a lateral ejection off my career track uh, through a variety of things. Then I connected with a financier who had done very well on Wall Street and and beyond basically as one of the uh, original pioneers of what we now call private equity. And uh, he had come to a similar kind of place, but obviously in a very different path and uh, challenged me to work with him to create an investment approach to charitable giving and philanthropy and to think about how do you really take uh, business uh, principles and practices, the practices of finance and use that to manage a philanthropic portfolio. And so we started working together in 1989 and, um, that led to 11 years of my uh, being founding director of what's now called red F and, um, we were the second venture philanthropy fund in the US, the first to really begin documenting uh, principles and practices and sharing you know, our learnings and experiences with the field. And so that got me out uh, doing a lot of public speaking and communication around social entrepreneurship, venture philanthropy. And as a part of that work, we had created what I think was the first formalized methodology around social return on investment. Uh, at the time that was a very popular Term that started coming up and people saying, "Oh, we invest for social returns," and I would say to you know the for-profit mission-driven investors, you know, what does that mean? And they they would you know how do you actually do that? And they would say, "Oh, you know, they would laugh and they would say, we don't actually do that. It's a metaphor." And um, I was like, "Well, we track performance, and we we asked for what I thought at the time were pretty elegant frameworks for." trying to monetize the economic value of social impact, discount it back to time zero and come up with a a baseline valuation of the social enterprise, and then use that as a way to understand the value that we were creating as an investor. And so uh, over time that led to more and more invitations for me to work with for-profit mission-driven investors, uh, mainly in the venture and the private equity space. Although I also then um, spent a decade kind of slotting in behind different folks who were doing uh, various aspects of what we now call impact investing. And um, it was a great period. I got to do some work in private equity and venture public securities. I ended up actually working with a fund of hedge funds group for a while, um, looking at sustainable hedge fund practices and what what would that look like? Um, and then uh, really by accident in 2010, I received an invitation to meet with uh, a principal in a fam- multifamily office out of Hong Kong. And uh, it was really striking because I suddenly realized that at the family office level, you would be able to work with all the capital, that you could work on a, what I called a total portfolio management basis and use all of your assets for impact. And so uh, you could look at strategies for managing the deployment of philanthropic, near market, market rate capital, and so that became, you know, a focus of my work for the last decade, really, um, with uh, five different families, uh, all of whom had a different understanding of impact and what they wanted to do with their capital. And um, so all, you know, all is fine and good. And you could, in some ways, say that, you know, we we have won. Uh, we've won the victory, and mainstreaming of impact investing is here. Uh, If you include, if you take a broad lens and say all capital has impact uh, and you consider social responsible investing, which is kind of like the values screened kind of practices, uh, ESG integration, which is uh, taking environmental, social, and governance factors and weaving them into an investment strategy together with direct impact investing, uh, you're really looking at $30 to $40 trillion now globally of capital that's being managed on that basis. And I reached a point where I thought, you know, on the one hand, this is great. And on the other hand, we've completely lost our way. And so what I decided to do is I needed to step back from all of this and, and try to really reconnect with uh, how we got here, how, how we evolved this idea that you could, in fact, pursue financial return in the absence of consideration of social and environmental impacts. And so that's why I ended up doing the Purpose of Capital Uh, about three years ago. I spent three or four years actually in a kind of reading, writing posture, uh, and then I've spent the last two years uh, just engaging in conversations uh, around the world with folks on the ideas that we explored there.
0: Yeah, it's a really um, profound title. Like, uh, I have a CFA, I studied an an MBA in finance, and I don't think at any point we ever talked about the, the purpose of capital. We talked about what it does and how it's useful. But the purpose of it is, you know, again, it's just something that um, I don't think a lot of people stop to think a, a lot about. So, um, I, uh, so I, I'd love to let me stop here and talk a little bit about the book. Um, you know, I've, I've noticed through the, throughout, you know, a lot of your talks and through the book itself, um, you weave a lot of history and I think philosophy into the discussion. Um, Talk a little bit about that and and maybe you kind of weave in, I found it really interesting. You talked about the sort of increasing dualism um, that maybe started around the time of Descartes. Uh, I think you postulated to sort of separate religion and science from one another. And that sort of starting this longer term trend that is manifested in all sorts of ways in which we see ourselves as separate and distinct from the world around us and having dominion over it. can you talk a little bit about that aspect of the book and why you think it's important and how it relates to impact investing? Uh, <clears throat> sure. Well, I think the first thing we should say is that the book is free. So we're not right. just trying to sell books. <laughs> I'm gonna link to the into the and the podcast to the to the book. So if anybody okay. wants to find it in the show notes, you'll find the link yep. to the book. That sounds great. And we have over the past couple of years now, we have the, the
1: free ebook and multiple kind of digital versions. We have a music video about uh, the concepts of the purpose of capital. We have a reader's guide. We have teaching notes. I mean, so we really have tried to um, provide a variety of on-ramps, if you will, uh, because the fact is we don't talk about these issues very much. I I, uh, have had faculty appointments at uh, Stanford, at um, Harvard, at Oxford, at NYU, and it, in each of these places, when you talk about the purpose of capital, the purpose of capital is to make more capital, right? The, the purpose of capital is to like, uh, basically for whatever your particular level of comfort is with you know, risk return uh, to deploy capital in a diversified portfolio that can optimize financial performance. I mean, that is what the purpose of capital is kind of understood by the mainstream. And yet I think for most of us, we would say, well, actually the purpose of capital is really something else. Like that the reason that you'll want to have money is to have a level of security. It offers you some sense of self-worth and value. Um, I mean, there's just a whole host of what you could think of almost as extra financial uh, elements of value that you seek um, when you know you, you pursue wealth and money. And so uh, it becomes, I think, important uh, that that we stop and that we uh, take a a time to really step back. And instead of going with the answers that are presented to us uh, by traditional frameworks, by traditional investing, by traditional financial institutions, that we stop to reflect on the reality that our understanding of the purpose of capital is actually a social construct. It is something that that we have inherited from other people who have come together at various points uh, over time to make decisions about how we should think about capital and what it is and how it's to be managed and, and marketed and measured. And I think that increasingly for a lot of us, we're realizing that those traditional ways to think about capital, especially as has been given us in the form of Western uh, modern financial capitalism in particular, uh, it really is uh, falls short. And on the one hand, sure, uh, you know, uh, great value and wealth has been created through traditional financial capitalism uh, forms and structures. Uh, millions of people uh, have had their lives improved uh, by virtue of the workings of free enterprise and markets. And yet at the same time, there has been a, a very uh, real cost uh, that we have borne uh, by pursuit of capital on the terms that we currently understand it. And this is the conversation around circular economy, regenerative economy, uh, you know, uh, restorative economics. I mean, uh, there's a whole movement of people exploring now ideas with regard to how do we get back to the original uh, Greek of economics, which is household management, uh, which is providing for your family, providing for your community, uh, and understanding the purpose of capital in a much broader sense. Um, Now, you had asked about the the bifurcation piece, and I think that for me, I just reached a point where I realized uh, in the 90s that a lot of our problems <laughs> uh, for people who were trying to do kind of you know good and well was that we were operating in a world that is a bifurcated value frame. Uh, it asks you to embrace the idea that you can separate uh, value, that you can think about economics separate apart from social and environmental factors, that you can uh, pursue um, the optimizing financial return and not think about externalities, not think about other elements of impact that you're creating that are negative uh, for not only in the broad sense for the planet, but really for our very selves, uh, for who we are as individuals. And so I decided that I needed to take some time. I had been promoting the concept of blended value since uh, the late 90s, And realized that while I had really gone deeply into thinking that through and understanding, at least for myself, the implications for capital and wealth management and our understanding of performance, that I really had not taken the time to reflect on how do we even get here? (laughs) How was it that we uh, got to this place where you really could believe that you could do one versus the other as opposed to a both and understanding of value? And so I began, uh, in essence, just doing a lot of reading. And I thought of it as kind of an open architecture reading process where uh, I began reading about the history of economics and finance. And that took me into uh, reading a broader social and you know human history. And that took me into political science, uh, which took me into... Uh, Philosophy uh, and then ultimately uh, physics and religion. Because if you go far enough in the physics realm, you go into religion. That's right. And which brought me back to impact investing. And so it was for me personally, t- simply taking the time to read and to reflect, to, to step back from doing the work uh, was incredibly valuable. And I think part of our problem today is that we have a society that leads with its mouth. Uh, we, we lead with our answers, with our solutions, with our innovations. Uh, we think we are, uh, as Arnold Tornby, the historian observed, every generation thinks it is the ultimate uh, pinnacle of human development. And in some ways, they're right. Uh, every generation is the, the the ultimate development. But the fact is, each generation has thought that. And when you step back from your generational kind of place and really consider, you know, the lives and stages and realities that other generations operated within, you actually uh, become quite humbled because you realize that there are, there really is very little uh, that's new in this process. Uh, there may be new technologies, but the point of technology, again, is not the end in and of itself, the point of technology is to act, to do something, to be present in the world in a different way uh, through the use and application of these technologies. And so um, it, uh, what you realize when you look at across millennium, uh, this has been the quest really in, in, in large part it has been this drive to try to understand uh, purpose and meaning uh, for for certainly at a social level, but really most importantly, it's been driven by individuals who over time have been grappling with uh, the shortcomings of what the world tells them is real. And they then, uh, when, you, when you embrace that question and you begin to really explore that, uh, you find you go off on a whole host of paths and um, it becomes really fascinating. And so this is why I kind of uh, took that, in some ways circuitous path back to the purpose of capital. Because for our society today, certainly in Western culture, um, you know, money is the root of it, right? We are a capitalist order uh, in a variety of ways, uh, whether it's uh, conditioned or not. I mean, that is the framework that we function within, broadly speaking. And for us not to take the time to really step back from our labors Uh, to reflect on why we are laboring, uh, I think is important uh, for us to actually do. And so that's what the book does, is basically walks us through uh, some of that history. Uh, But as you know, I I don't do it in a linear way. I do it more thematically (laughs) and taking kind of different ideas and concepts. Um, And the other thing that I did uh, with the book that personally I really like is that instead of Doing all of this reading and research, and then writing about other people's ideas or taking their ideas and kind of turning them just a little bit uh, and then saying, this is my new variation on that idea. I actually built the book with, um, in some cases, pretty long excerpts from some of the writers and authors and historians and economists and spiritualists. I mean, that I read in the course of doing the book. And then I use my writing really as a linking narrative to try to, to pull these different pieces together, uh, on this path. And so on the one hand, uh, I, I think it's a great read. I've gotten really good feedback from folks. Uh, on the other hand, it's a very tough read because there are two ways. One is these aren't concepts that we're used to really thinking about very often. So for people who, you know, who don't kind of play in that space, it could be a heavy lift, which is why we have the music video and we have the reader's guide and <laughs> we have a whole bunch of tools to help people kind of, uh, offer them on ramps to the conversation. Um, but that said, it, the, the thematic piece kind of takes you to a place where you could read uh, something and it clicks something else in your mind while you're reading the book and you start thinking about, well, what do I think about that? Or what does this mean? Or that reminds me of this and that. And I've actually gotten emails from people saying, I really hate your book because I, I've read like, you know, three pages and it got me thinking about something and then I start looking out the window and thinking. And then it's like an hour has gone by, and I've only read three pages. <laughs> and it's one of those kind of books, so it's got kind of, you have to really sit with the book, I think—and and explore it on your own terms. That you
0: could not have said that better. Uh, it's exactly been my experience with the book. It's Is there? Right? <laughs> Excellent. Challenging and thought-provoking, and it never taken, it's never taken—it's never taken me as long to read a book um, as, as this one because it's exactly that i'm stopping every passage or two and i'm listening to the passage three or four times because like it's there's a lot in it and it's profound and so you have to really wrestle with that i mean i could read the book quickly if i wanted to but i wouldn't get much out of it um and so yeah that's that's exactly right I've, i've said that to people when i've recommended it is just keep in mind that it's a it's a challenging book um because it's you know forcing us to think, think in ways that we're we're not used to and we haven't considered before. So um right. but I, in that way I, it's what I love about it as well. So Well, and it's interesting because this is the eighth book that I've uh, either
1: co-authored or authored and the other ones have all been about, you know, how do you think about social entrepreneurship? How do you think about impact investing? How do you, how do you do this? It's all been strategy and tactics. Right. And all of that led me to realize that well, uh, you know, in the words of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, we're at risk of having guided missiles, but misguided men. And um, the idea that we we spend so much time thinking about how do we innovate on these financial instruments? How do we have better metrics? How do we have tighter definitions? If we lose track of why we do any of this, then none of that really matters. And you do end up with
0: guided missiles and misguided men. Yeah, well said. Um we're going to, I think, come back to that a little bit on the, when I, I want to talk to you about impact measurement and management um, a little bit. But, uh, uh, you know, the other thing that struck me in this book is the and, and in all of your work and conversations we've had, um, spirituality seems to play a pretty big role for you in, in your life. And at least at least interweaving the, the fact that spirituality is important to a lot of people on the planet and um, Can you talk a little bit about what role you think it has in understanding impact investing and or practicing it? Time for a quick break from our sponsor.
2: The world of personal finance is full of strange and wonderful rules. And honestly, it makes optimizing your finances nearly impossible unless you're a professional. Is it better to use an RRSP or a TFSA? Are you making the most of your employer pension and benefits? What should you do with company stock or options? How does your business fit into your long term financial plan? These are just a fraction of the questions Canadians struggle with. The confusion can lead to choices that end up costing thousands of dollars a year. Kind Wealth can help you make the most of your money by offering high quality financial advice. No sales commissions. No hidden fees, no long-term contracts. Just honest advice at a price you can afford. Visit kindwealth.ca to learn more.
0: And now back to the podcast. Wow. um, I know that's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big question. I think, you know, it's
1: just hard because, you know, I remember, like I'm 61. So I think some of this is a function of age and perspective. And I distinctly remember... And I can't remember what event I was at, but I was at some conference uh, when I was probably thirty or thirty-one, and I remember some guy standing up there and talking about you know all these ideas about you know that companies should be about more than making money and you know all all the stuff that we now kind of take for granted in terms of the public conversation. And I remember this guy saying. You know and this is all really important, but we really need to also tend to our spiritual development and self in the course of you know doing this work and I just remember saying, "Oh jesus, like here's another old fart, like like <laughs> going off on this spirituality thing and and I felt in my thirties that the arguments that we should make for impact are all very rational uh logical analytic i mean it just it makes sense and Um, And we can talk about the metrics piece and how that relates later. But, uh, you know, I was very much into this, what you could think of as a a scientific reductionist understanding of economics and finance and investing. And and there's a security in that, right? Because you create, again, these constructs that you operate within and you say anything that doesn't fit within my construct, I'm just going to set over here as some kind of aberration. Um, and I'll define reality as the things that, you know, are inside my framework. And the truth is um, what I think we've all discovered and, you know, not a new discovery, but, but I think stronger discovery for ourselves in this generation is really the limitations of that type of frame. And an acknowledgement that beyond, beyond this, there is more. And however you think about it, however you understand it, uh, however you explore that, uh, the reality is that the physical frames that we kind of structure, uh, that we um, comfort ourselves with, uh, really are just a starting place. And, And if you're honest, uh, you have to go to these other levels. It's the nature of being conscious, right? It's the nature of being human. Uh, it's the nature of being uh, that we would explore the outer reaches, if you will. And And this is why for me, it was kind of funny to do the book because I actually did not set out to go down that path. That was not my intent. Um, I was going to do a history of how we thought about finance and economics and all that. And, and as I you know, it was like a, a sweater, you know, a thread off a sweater, right? Where as I started pulling this out and you start looking at, well, where did this all come from? And what were the debates and the issues and how did we approach this? Um, you do get to the sciences, the natural sciences, uh the, the idea that you know economics is a, a form of philosophical science, you know, like a and this is where it began and so it's very natural that you then push the edge of physics and you start talking about you know the physics of finance and you know how how does that work and how do we think about those principles and practices as they manifest within capital markets and within economics and all of a sudden, you're kind of out there on your own, right? <laughs> and, and you start to, you just start to push on these other elements and, you know, call it spiritual, call it philosophical, call it values. Um, but the fact is that the, the constructs that we've created for ourselves are self-imposed. And when you transcend them, uh, you really can go to some incredibly powerful places that give you a sense of confidence and place that uh, in the absence of those, I have not felt uh, half as enlightened or knowledgeable or strong uh, in simply the course of uh, pursuing my life. And so I, in writing the book, it was kind of funny because, you know, it is economics, it's history, it's finance, it's science. uh, And it, it The linking element, the fascia that kind of pulls it all together is a sense of awareness and consciousness um, that you could call spirituality, but it really manifests in a variety of ways. And so the book kind of comes in and comes out of those issues as a function of exploring economics and history and, you know, the fact that humanity really that, you know, our experience as humans really is this quest for meaning and purpose. And so this is why you see it kind of woven through the book.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, it's really interesting. I, I, I have found, I'm wondering if you agree with this, Uh, maybe it's my own skewed perspective of just people or circles I'm in, but it seems like that this sort of, um, increasing folk, like the science itself, like just, and more so like the hard kind of sciences, the, logical sciences the provable the scientific method has really been you know there's increasing secularism more and more people kind of moving to kind of evidence-based approaches and i think it's all for the good those are those are good things but it also seems like we may have lost um touch with or there's an aversion to things that can't be really quantified um, and measured as if that's you know there's there's no evidence there's not logical because I can't prove it with numbers and, and stats and figures. And we've sort of even to the extent that I've noticed like backlashes against things like philosophy, which I think are, you know, wildly important, um, is a wildly important discipline, which I, which to me I think answers a different question than science. Instead of asking how, how is it that this has come to be? It's why is this? You know, there it's just it's it's extra answering questions outside of science. Right. Like, why is there something as opposed to nothing? Those types of questions. So I don't know. Do you find that that's the case? and, and it, or, or are you finding that now we're getting more acceptance of, of things outside of the, the purely scientific? I mean, again, it's it, I mean, the fact is Descartes,
1: uh, part of the reason that he came up with this concept of uh, mechanistic dualism and the separation of mind body Um was because he was writing during a period of the Inquisition. Mm. And he knew that if he was started to explore in these other areas, he could get called on the carpet as a lot of other philosophers during that period were. And that that could be not only very damaging to his career and his life, but, but he personally could you know be tortured <laughs> for having these ideas. And by introducing this concept of dualism, and the separation of mind and body, and describing, you know, the universe as a clock and all these other things, you know, all of that, you know, Descartian framework, uh, in some ways protected him uh, from, you know, very real kind of social and political and religious forces that were loose in the day. What it also did, though, is it set us down this path. Um, and, you know, it says that because you can't you know, measure and assess uh, non-material factors in a materialist framework, they must not exist. And it's the idea of economics that says that there is such a thing as externalities and that if you can't measure uh, certain things relative to the functioning of business enterprise, then eh, they don't really matter, right? And the fact is, wow, like, do they matter? (laughs) You know, like environmental and social factors as we're seeing today, and we could talk about COVID, uh, later in terms of what a great representation this is of the, the price that you pay uh, by operating with a dualistic frame. But uh, we basically have this understanding that that you can, in fact, live this way. And I think there was a period when, uh, I don't think there was ever a period where socially this was true. I mean, you think about you know the explorers and their idea of the indigenous peoples as being other And so therefore, they could do X, Y, and Z to them, right? So there's an immediate right there. That bifurcation has an immediate cost. But on an economic basis, for years, we've acted as if externalities uh, can just be set aside. They're not really part of the metrics. They're not part of our algorithm of consideration. And uh, we're seeing today that that is simply a lie, that it's simply not true. And the, the other issue that comes up here is that if you really want to go into these areas of inquiry, you have to approach them from a place of humility and a place that says, in fact, that begins with this idea that I don't know, like, I have a question. <laughs> and as I was saying before, in our society today, we don't really value people with good questions. We, we always value the entrepreneur with the next great idea. We value the uh, investment house that has this great offering that we can invest in. Um, We're looking for answers. And the thing, the irony for me in this is uh, Albert Einstein is said to have said, I don't know if he actually said this, but he is said to have said um, if he was given one hour to solve, you know, a critical issue upon which his life depended, that he would spend 55 minutes just considering the question and five minutes uh, executing the answer. Because if you spend enough time in reflection and understanding, then the solutions are clear. And I think this is when we talk about impact investing and ESG integration and, you know, these various new ways that we're talking about managing capital and wealth today, uh, we have a plethora of investment strategies, funds, offerings. You've got, I mean, literally every single major investment house on Wall Street has an impact group of some type, and some are weaving it you know, throughout the firm. And so we have all these answers and yet we've not really stopped to reflect on, well, what is it that we're really investing for? What is it we're really trying to do? And so I think that's really what, what I'm calling for.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, there's, um, I have a practical question for you. There's a great passage in the, in the book, um, around, uh, there's first of all, there's lots of descriptions of of nature, which I love. Um, you do a very good job of those. Uh, there's, a, I think, I think at the uh, the passage I'm referring to, you were on a hike in a nature reserve. I'm, I'm guessing this is out in Colorado, and you had this experience where there's some snow um, snowmobilers who were snowmobiling in an area they weren't supposed to, and crossed your path. And they were friendly enough, and you had this interaction with them, and you were sort of r- you know, recounting how you you you've, you've thought about like, these people, you know, these are probably, you know, you don't know them, but they seem like pleasant enough people. They're probably not intending to do anything wrong, but they're completely oblivious to their their uh, relationship to the environment around them. Um, and at the superficial level, it's the, hey, it's again, you know, you shouldn't be snowmobiling in here, but B, that that has a you know profound impact on the environment around it. And that you kind of reach different planes of understanding. And that you are on different planes of understanding about your you know, place in the world and relationship with it and so I've found that as well that there's sort of this idea of reaching new planes of understanding and it takes time you have to wrestle with these ideas and sort of you, know, you get to these these levels and it only takes place over a long period of time I guess my question is how do you have conversations with people and I think you, you start to address it in the book but how do you have conversations with people who are on these different planes of understanding because I found it very difficult and you want to just get somebody to where you're at in terms of understanding, but it's taken me personally, I've only been in this space for four or five years. It's taken me that long to get where I am in understanding. I don't know how you speed that up or, or bridge the gap when you're talking to people who are just starting this journey, you know? Right. No, it's it
1: is hard. I mean, it really is, and I think that. But we see this and we experience this uh, throughout our lives. Uh, you know, uh, well beyond you know areas of trying to talk to people about impact investing. Um, when I think about how I was in my thirties, um, I cringe. Like I, I really do. <laughs> and on and on the one hand, I'm like very proud of who I who I've been at each stage. Right. I mean, I've been very. I think, authentic in my exploration. I've been very passionate in terms of what I believe is right and correct. And um, truth be told, when I look back, uh, these have all obviously been kind of variations on a theme and iterations toward, you know, much deeper understanding. And, and the challenge, I think, for all of us is that, you know, you have to function in the world and you have to create a set of answers that allow you to, to get up in the morning and get out of bed. Right? <laughs> and the, the challenge I think that we have is we, we confuse uh, our various aspects and elements of truth with a small T uh, with truth with a big T. And mm-hmm. we, it, it, that then prevents us from actually embracing, you know, a sense of deeper meaning and purpose uh, because we stop, we get stuck. We basically operate within a single um, sense of reality as opposed to understanding that there are diverse and various realities that we're operating within and awareness comes through recognition of the degree to which we operate in our own worlds and the degree to which we are fundamentally part of the same world and so This is the, the, in the Buddhist tradition, you speak about the illusion of separation. And I think that for me, when I think about the bifurcated value proposition that asks us to either, you know, make a grant or make an investment to choose between doing good or doing well, to work for a nonprofit versus a for-profit. I mean, you have all of these different choices that flow from this. you really realize that at the end of the day, you know, this is going to sound whatever, but we really are all one. <laughs> and the sooner you, you begin to get that, the easier it becomes to talk with people who don't get that because you just can see, you know, and you have, I think, a grounding in the, in the unity. So when you speak to somebody, you can kind of place them uh, in that kind of frame and, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit. And, you know, we, we have a, had a home in Colorado for many years. I was um, in junior high school, high school, graduate school uh, in Colorado, and then have lived uh, full-time and, and at other times part-time in a very rural area. Uh, most of my neighbors are Trump supporters. Um, most of my neighbors uh, think in terms of, extractive business and economic practices. Uh, it's a mining, a ranching uh, timber area um, that also has uh, tourism now in the past, obviously 20 years has become more significant. And the whole, the frame that they operate within is that frame. And so I can not agree with them on a variety of different things, but we can always try to find the common place that we can stand on as we look out and we say, well, what does this look like from where you are? And what does that look like from where you are? What's been your experience of these things and these factors? And I also, in the book, I think in that same chapter where I talk about the snowmobilers, talk about a friend of mine. I have a number of, of friends in Colorado who, uh, who hunt and who you know, will take an elk at, you know, in the fall and pack their freezer and that's their meat for the next whatever, four or five, six months. And uh, he was telling me about an experience of his where he had been out um, hunting for a day and had been tracking the same uh, bull elk for uh, something, I don't know what it was, something like four hours. And it was just at his end. <laughs> like He was tired, he'd been tramping through the woods. Uh, he would would, get a little sight and then it would disappear, this kind of thing. And he had this moment <clears throat> where he was on this uh, uphill area and he was kind of taking a break in some bushes uh, downhill from where the bull elk was. And he looked up and he could smell uh, the elk. It was like the the, the scent was coming down the, you know the, the hillside. And he could just through the trees, he just saw like this flash of kind of brown. And all of a sudden the elk stepped out fully. And he knew that if he raised his rifle and took the safety off, that the, the elk would flee. And he would get a kind of a back end shot or a shot that would be risky. And he was a very good hunter. So honestly, I think he probably could have gotten off a shot that would have hit the elk. And instead, he just stopped and he looked at the elk (laughs) and the elk looked at him. And this, you know, this animal was maybe 20, 30 feet away and the elk like. And turned and walked into the woods. And my friend was just kind of like, that was my chance. It was, you know, a great rack. It would have been a great, um, you know, bull elk to bring home. And he just felt a, a different kind of connection at that point. And so he passed on what he thought was a riskier shot, and he simply stayed fully present in the moment of being with the elk, if you will. And then the following weekend, he took a he took another elk in another situation. So I think that you know, even in the sense of uh, lives that are very different from our own,s there there are moments and there are opportunities that we have uh, to really connect. And I think the real tragedy about what is happening today in America is that it has become so polarized that we, are, we have completely lost the capacity to see the humanity in others. And so then that's why it's possible for people to bring AR-15s to demonstrations and to shoot people. Uh, that's why it's possible uh, for people to despise other people who have different values and beliefs from theirs. Uh, we really have moved so deeply into the bifurcation um, that we're going to have to figure out kind of like, how do we reconnect as, as, as people, as humanity, uh, in this context that we find ourselves within here in the U.S.? And obviously, I think this is playing out in a variety of ways around the world. And if we think about the origins of COVID, uh, you know, I, I'm not a scientist, so I can't give you all the details, but my understanding is that, you know, it came originally from a virus from bats, um, and that part of the the fact that we have as humanity connected with those bats is that we have destroyed habitat we have we have destroyed uh, so many areas that now are unleashing not just the animals from those areas but literally in the case of Ebola uh, you know viruses that have actually been on the planet for centuries that uh, that we haven't been exposed to before because you know they've been deep in you know these certain ecosystems and the irony is that we destroy the habitat we unleash and force the bats to come into greater and greater contact with us Uh, those bats then infect animals that are caged in you know wet markets in asia which again is a reflection of our separation from those creatures that we that we think that's okay to kind of do that. Um, and then all of a sudden you're confronted with uh, the, the, the the complete connectivity of humanity in the form of the spread of this virus over the world that shuts everything down. And in the case of the United States, in the course of doing that, reflects uh, the degree to which we are separated from each other because we talk about the essential workers and the non-essential workers. We talk about the fact that the essential workers are largely, uh, and again, I don't know the specific uh, numbers around this, but my understanding is that essential workers are largely represented uh, in you know black, brown, and yellow communities where um, these are the people who are the service workers, who are the nurses, who are the transportation people. I mean, all of this, right? And we then, uh, as a society, pay a price for for this bifurcation. And we see them through, you know, the the result of the pandemic has exposed the social injustice, environmental injustice. I mean, a whole host of factors that really are part and parcel with an approach to financial capitalism that's predicated on extracting value from one place and consolidating it somewhere else. And the end result of that uh, you do that iteration so many times and you end up with the 1% and you end up with, you know, the, the balance of the population that sees no way, the, that that has no avenues. Uh, be, and we can debate all kinds of things in terms of, The fact that in china you know you have now five to 700 million people who were lifted out of poverty in the last 10 years because of you know modern capitalism you've got i mean all of the great things that has happened in the us over the years with regard to everything from you know dishwashers to tvs that you know liberate us much less transportation i mean it's kind of like there's all this great stuff and it all comes uh, at a cost at a price that we will increasingly have to pay because, um, you know, there is no way, right? You can't, you can't just toss this shit over here and forget about it. And I think part of what's happening, um, I think it was Hegel who said that in the United States uh, that we would not uh, truly come into our own as a nation until we had to confront each other. And the confrontation comes in the absence of uh, new territories that can be kind of uh, dominated and controlled and taken over, and now here we are, uh, and there's nowhere to go, right? You, uh, you know, there's very little land that's pure land that's open for development. Really, I mean, you know, we can talk about all the details and things and argue about some of that, but at the end of the day, you know, we have cities. We've, we've. When you fly across the country and you see road after road after road. You see everything is you know, like developed for agriculture, industrial agriculture for the most part. Um, it, we are having to come to terms uh, with what has happened, what we've created relative to this extractive economic system that not only extracts kind of natural resources and you know kind of natural capital, but also does the same thing with people, it views people as in many ways disposable. And of not having inherent worth and value, and so this really is what we're having to confront and engage uh, at this point in our development.
0: Yeah, I am. I'm hopeful. One of the the takeaways from 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 COVID is this is a deep understanding of how interconnected we are. And like, if you think about the very fact that you know this this disease spreads so rapidly and that no matter your your level of wealth i mean you can you can reduce your exposure to it and you've got more flexibility and more ability to do that but you still are not isolated from it there's no way to escape it entirely and so that you are hamstrung by your weakest link right and and that is one of the downsides of not having you know public health care or you know so so i hope that that's one of the takeaways that sort of helps connect people and makes right people realize that we're interconnected, but
1: well, and so yes. And, uh, in order to go forward, uh, in order to reconstruct, you have to deconstruct, you know, it it has to break down. And what we're seeing now is this, this kind of systemic, uh, dissolution of this system. And so, on the one hand it underscores the interconnectivity that you're describing on the other hand it uh, really exemplifies the, the separation and the disconnection and the yeah. injustices that are there and so you know i think that what we have to do is and this is hard but we have to on the, we have to have some level of confidence and comfort in the the process of destruction <laughs> mm-hmm. and Uh, have a vision about what this could then open up, um, not only for us, but for others. And so, um, and and we have always thought about profit and wealth as being something that we should accrue for ourselves. And if other people get it as well, then that's great. You know, that's fine, but that's not my responsibility. And I think increasingly, when we talk about uh, impact investing, what we're seeing is, a recognition of the fact that if my wealth comes at your expense then i actually have not profited and that there there has to, we have to create ways where we can co-create value uh, that is sustained uh, over time and that doesn't require uh, your sacrifice for my benefit and so this is really where impact investing kind of has a lot of the roots of its philosophy is the whole idea that you can do well and do good. And the fact that that commitment forces us to really explore the degrees and ways in which traditional capitalism allows you to do that and the ways in which it can never allow you to do that. and so. This is where you get the whole conversation about capitalism 3.0. You get the conversation around stakeholder capitalism as an evolution beyond shareholder primacy. There's all kinds of implications to that that you you explore and you discover. And this is, again, my frustration with the current conversation in the field is that it confuses the ability to raise billion-dollar impact funds with somehow impact. (laughs) And and it confuses kind of like the creation of conforming product that can be distributed through existing financial pipelines with success as if somehow, you know, selling more financial product that is branded impact uh, is the point. Uh, And it's just not. It's just not the point. Uh, It is a a means to an end. It's part of the process. uh, But ultimately, that's not what the purpose of this impact capital is about. And you know, uh, I won't give away where the book ends, but uh, the, the purpose of capital is, is more as a liberation uh, than oppression. And we've gone well away from that understanding.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot to cover. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I could ask you a lot of questions about all of that. Um, in the interest of, of time and letting you get to your uh, to your day, I, I, I will resist the, the urge and just maybe we can part on, on one question. Um, what do you see sort of going forward as either kind of biggest risks, biggest challenges in the industry or on the flip side, you know, areas where you think you're most optimistic or excited about?
1: I think the risk is the one that I've been discussing in terms of the idea that we confuse, uh, you know, uh, intent with impact. Uh, we, We say that because, you know, we're, we mean, well, we've branded this, we have the right metrics uh, therefore, we've created impact. Uh, I think the, the whole idea is that we actually need to pause and, and really go much deeper in, in dialogue and conversation with, uh, if you will, the objects of our impact and realize that, that actually impact investing is less about what you do to somebody else, uh, you know how many jobs you create, um, how much soil you save. I mean, all of these things that we have external to ourselves and recognize that actually the real value of this conversation is around the notion of mutual impact and that we ourselves can be transformed in relationship with others as we co-create these new economic uh, instruments and orders and, and strategies. And so I think the, the risk and the danger is that by mainstreaming, uh, by simply thinking a little different, but not really differently about you know uh, how we approach uh, the purpose and meaning of capital—that we will miss, we will miss the boat, uh, and we'll miss this great opportunity. Now that said, um, I'm I'm just struck like every day <laughs> when I talk to different people about things that they are creating in communities and in ecosystems around the world that that hold the, the definite seeds of alternative ways of executing these ideas in practice, and it just reminds me that there isn't an answer. There's not like one thing. It's more, it's not a silver bullet, it's silver buckshot, right? And there are so many people creating new vehicles, uh, deploying capital in new terms, uh, exploring our relationships as a function of capital in different ways, uh, that I'm actually very hopeful that if we can get through these short-term crises and we don't uh, slide into civil disorder, that we don't, Uh, end up incinerating ourselves uh, because of the climate crisis. If we can manage through some of those issues, uh, we have an opportunity, we have a chance on the other side uh, to be able to create something stunning. I mean, something phenomenal uh, that humanity has been trying to advance uh, for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I feel that uh, if we take the learnings and lessons of, of previous generations, and weave them into uh, consideration of how we are understanding this reality, this world that we operate within. Uh, we have the possibility to create something uh, truly extraordinary uh, that our children and our grandchildren and our children's children um, will continue to be able to build upon for centuries and centuries to come.
0: I love that. Um, as a as a parting thought, um, you know, one of the impact. You know metrics, uh, if you will, that we should be kind of thinking about talking about and integrating is if you if you as an impact investor are left you know, sort of unchanged by you know, your thoughts and views uh, uh, and approach to what you're doing has been left unchanged by the impact you're delivering, you aren't doing it properly. Right. That's like, a great frame. I love that. That's exactly what I'm saying. So yeah, thank you for that. It. I'll take that forward as please, my new metric. <laughs> please do. <laughs> Borrow it with abandon. Um, right. It's uh, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time, Jed. And uh, I'll, I'm going to link in the show notes to all the resources you mentioned there. And um, I hopefully we'll have you on again sometime to keep chatting.
1: That'd be great. I appreciate the invitation and the chance to be in conversation with you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks, Jed.
0: Cheers. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, I can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast.
2: Here's the, the Impact Investing Podcast.
0: Yeah, just like that.
2: You're listening to the Impact Investing Pod.